Hey there, thanks so much for joining me today on The Shaleen Show. How are you? How's your week going? Hopefully, it is drama-free. Hopefully, you're in the mood for a little inspiration because that's what we have in store for you. Today, my guest is going to share what it means to be resilient, what it means to take your power back and to survive, not just survive, but just to be a champion, to overcome your past. She survived a childhood probably much like some of yours that was filled with abandonment and abuse and neglect and just a lot of scary chaos. The pain of her past led to failed relationships, a battle with eating disorders, anxiety, depression, and a lot of hiding, like hiding from the world who she really was and what it was she had been through. Like she built this life that became a facade so that no one would ever know about the pain of her past. And today she shares with us what it has done for her to come clean, to deal with the demons of her past, to embrace her past and to move past it and to find her voice and to be a safe place for other people, what it means to get through grief and to find a way to use her faith to propel her forward and help others. This is a story about resilience. Today, my guest is Tana Amen, the author of the new book, The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child, How Persistence, Grit, and Faith Created a Reluctant Healer. You might recognize Tana's voice or her name because you've probably seen her on countless PBS specials with her husband, Dr. Daniel Amen, a friend and regular contributor to The Shaleen Show. Together, they have four children. They have five grandchildren. And Tana is just, she's a remarkable human being, just so relatable. Lifers, you're going to love her. She's just a girl's girl. And she's honest and she's real and she's really smart and her story is remarkable. Not only is she the vice president of the Amen Clinics, but she's written 10 books. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's also a neurosurgical ICU trauma nurse, a world-renowned health and fitness expert. She co-hosts the podcast with her husband. Oh, and get this, she also holds a second-degree black belt in Kempo Karate and a black belt in Taekwondo. This woman is an inspiration. All right, before we get to the interview... I just want to mention I'm recording this the first week of November, and this is the week when we change our clocks ahead, and it has seriously messed with my circadian rhythm. Are you with me? Where you're just, your body is not ready yet to go to sleep when you're supposed to go to sleep or to wake up when you're supposed to wake up. It's just, it's really a strange thing. So what I've been relying on this week, knowing that we were going to do this fall ahead, you know, you change the clocks an hour ahead thing, is I've been relying on my nutrition. Specifically, I have been drinking at night a nice warm tea, a delicious nighttime herbal tea called Organifi Gold. Now, you guys know if you've been listening to me for a long time, I used to do this sugar-free hot chocolate that was just like loaded with chemicals. And I found this alternative, and this is way better because it actually helps me to fall asleep faster, to sleep deeper, and to wake up without feeling like drowsy, like you might if you took like, you know, a Tylenol PM or whatever. Why? Because it's all natural. It contains nine superfoods that help you to sleep more deeply and to feel more recovered. It's 100% organic, USDA certified. It will allow you to go into REM sleep faster. You'll wake up feeling more rested. It's got ingredients like lemon balm, reishi mushroom, turmeric, and ginger. What does it taste like? Well, I think it tastes like a hot chocolate. Now, the way I prepare mine is I mix a little bit of stevia in with it. And I mix it with hot water and a little bit of my Oatly creamer. 
like, you know, the creamer you put in your coffee. And if we're being fully transparent, I also put a little dab of Cocoa Whip on top. Yeah, because it needs to be a dessert for me. The first product I found with Organifi was a replacement for my lemon ginger water. This is like before I even started drinking the gold. So I was looking for something I could do that would give me all the benefits of the lemon ginger water that I usually make myself for those days when I just I don't have time to squeeze my own lemons. So they have two products that I mix together. I mix their Organifi Pure and I mix that with their Organifi Immunity. Really important, especially now when we're trying to fight off viruses. First of all, their immunity, these are just little packs. So you just pour them in your water. It will help you to drink more water. The immunity is really, really important because it's got your vitamin D. It's got your olive leaf extract. It's got your beta-glucans. It's got antibacterial, antifungal, and antiviral support. This is really important right now. And then I mix that. I don't know if you're supposed to mix them, but I do. I'm just telling you what I do. You can go to their site. They've got tons of amazing supplements. I highly recommend them. I'm just telling you the three that I use. I drink Organifi Gold at night, and I mix the Pure and the Immunity together in my water every single day. I drink the Organifi Pure for my brain. It tastes delicious, and it helps me to be more alert, more awake. It contains Neurofactor, Lion's Mane Mushroom, Apple Cider Vinegar, and you know about all of these benefits. It's got all of the ingredients to help you just function at a little higher level so your mental focus is on point. As a listener of the show, you get 15% off whatever you order from Organifi. Go to Organifi.com forward slash Shaleen. Again, I'm going to spell Organifi for you. O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I. Okay, so there's I's in there. O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash Shaleen. Link is in the show notes. Do not forget to enter the code Shaleen for your 15% off. Again, those are some of my favorite picks for their supplements, but they've got a lot of great supplements and they're all 100% USDA certified organic. All right, let's talk to Tana. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Your story is, now I hope you don't take offense to this, but it is one that I think many people probably will find a lot that they can connect with the first part of your story. And I think that sometimes people see someone as incredibly talented, as incredibly successful as you are. You know, I kind of went through your accolades before we started today, but like to hear about all of the things that you've done, you just think, oh, this person was probably set up with great privilege from the beginning. (laughs) Right? That's funny that you say that. Thank you so much for having me. But when I was speaking, after I wrote The Omni Diet and I was speaking about nutrition and I was you know, traveling around to different places. I was on stage one day and you know this, when you're speaking to people who are in need of nutritional help and exercise, sometimes, at least with our clinics, we're working with people who are not well. And so I'm on stage and a woman in the front row who wasn't well raises her hand and she goes, what would you know about my life? Look at you, your life is perfect. And yeah, it took me back. And I realized I'm speaking to this group of addicts at the time. And so, and in that moment, I realized just how judgmental I am. And I realized just how much they don't know me, but they don't know me because it was intentional on my part. I had spent years creating this facade so that they wouldn't know me, so that they couldn't see that brokenness. That's interesting that you said you described yourself as judgmental in that moment, yet the scenario you described was a woman who was judging you just based on what you look like. How could you possibly know my struggle? 
And that was my epiphany. They were judging each other. Yeah, but you describe yourself as being judgmental. How were you judging the addicts? And I'm assuming you didn't realize it in that moment, but maybe, I don't know, thereafter? Or, you know, What were you judging them for? So it actually started slightly before the event started. I didn't want to do it. So I was asked to change the menu for this very large treatment center. Mm-hmm. They had over 185 beds. It's one of the largest in the state and one of the largest in the country. And I was like, absolutely. Like, that's awesome. Right up my alley. I can change the menu. I want to help these people. I love the director. And then she said, no, I want you to help the people. I want you to work with them directly. And I was like, no, I can't. <laughs> and I didn't realize until that moment just how judgmental I was because of my past. So in my book, I write the story about how my uncle was murdered in a drug deal gone wrong. My other uncle was a heroin addict, which is how that uncle right. ended up being murdered. And there was a lot of chaos, a lot of drama, lots of trauma. And I didn't really realize I'd been carrying that all that time and how judgmental I was against, you know, addiction and people who did drugs. If you don't mind sharing what your childhood experience, you know, seeing your mom and your aunt go through that painful experience and and witnessing addiction, what were your feelings around people who were addicted? Because it would seem that you might have more empathy. It would seem that you might go, I I know that that's a good person who's sick. No, that didn't happen with me because I was so young when it happened. My uncle, who was a heroin addict, lived with us. Mm. And there was so much chaos in my house, lots of trauma, lots of drama. And our house was broken into frequently. So it always felt unsafe. There was uh, many times that he and his friends broke into the house. We didn't know it was them. But they would break into the house. I remember my mother running down the hall with a shotgun, racking a shotgun at the back of someone who was diving out the window. She shot a gun in the house another time. There was always this level of insanity or you know, just uncertainty and a lack of safety that I connected to drugs, that I connected okay. to. And they looked like zombies. They had this long, greasy hair, like we're at dinner one night and his head just falls into his spaghetti. You know, yeah. there was this feeling for me as a young child that it was like they were monsters under the bed. Oh, I get it. And yeah, so I connected that to being unsafe. So now fast forward, I didn't even realize I was still thinking that way. I'm a nurse. I'm a business person. Mm-hmm. I'm educated. You would think that I, you know, am able to reason through that, but yet I was fighting with myself. Mm-hmm. It's like my faith was grating against my humanity and I just couldn't sort of, re- you know, resolve it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm on stage and I'm this woman confronts me and, and I had told Daniel before I went, God picked the wrong person. I can't do this. And he goes, no, God picked the perfect person. You just have to tell them the truth. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? No, hell no. I'm not telling them the truth. Took me years to build this facade. Took me years to build this wall. And so I just had this idea that if I just put on enough makeup, put on the right clothes, you know, pretended to be perfect enough, got good enough grades, performed well enough that people wouldn't see me. But what people didn't see was how broken I was. In fact, I didn't tell anybody until probably 10 years ago, I had suffered silently with an eating disorder for so many years, just the chaos in my life, but drugs weren't an option. And so that need for control sort of emerged through this eating disorder. And I never told anyone. So much I want to tap into here. You know, when I was reading your book, what was coming to mind for me were so many people in my own life or that, you know, I've met who... There's just something about them. You can't put your finger on it, but you know that they are covering up some kind of pain or past. And the only way I can describe it is these are people who you want to like them, but you feel like you will never know them all the way. Like there's something. Almost like you can't trust it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like you almost want to say like, 
I don't know. I, my husband was like that. I married somebody who was like that. I always felt like I did not know my husband all the way. And I would oh, pick and prod and ask all the questions. And he would say, I don't remember or just be very mm-hmm. short with his answers. And it wasn't until his addiction, he had a gambling addiction and oh. went to therapy that he really revealed to me some very painful things from his past. And that's really when I truly fell in love with him. Like he was like, an, I married an okay guy, but like the person who I really fell in love with was the person who trusted me enough to know that he could tell me who he really was and about his past. So I, I wonder if we can start there. And if you can speak to that person who is carrying on the facade of everything is perfect Many times because we don't want everyone to know what's going on in our home. We don't want people to judge right. us and think that we're broken because of the brokenness maybe that we came from and how that it's a burden to carry that, isn't it? Oh, dear Lord. It was anybody who's doing it, who's listening to this right mm-hmm. now, they know it is exhausting. Mm. It is exhausting. And it all came crumbling down for me. I'd started dating my husband. He would tell you I tortured him because I kept coming and going because <laughs> I didn't want him to leave. And I told him, I go, I'm doing you a favor. There's no way I was going to let him in. I was never going to get married again, go through another painful divorce. There was just no way. So when you met him, you were, just to back up a little bit and give our listeners some background. So when you met him, you were a single parent, divorced? I was a single parent. I had a a Mm two-year-old. I'd gone through a terrible divorce. Mm -hmm. And so I was, but on the outside, it seemed like I pretty much had it together. I owned my own home. I didn't have bills. I had money in the bank. I was, you know, I was doing okay, except I wasn't doing okay. And so, but I, you know, I was in shape. I was, you know, all of these things you would think that I, you know, pretty good catch, I suppose (laughs) you would think, but I was such a mess inside. And so I couldn't let people get too close or they were going to see through that. Mm. And he's a psychiatrist. I almost canceled my first date with him because he's a psychiatrist. I'm like, he's going to psychoanalyze me. Yeah. Like pushing him away. And he's like, I need you to meet somebody that's a friend of mine. He takes me to meet Byron Katie. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Do you know I just discovered her this year? Oh, dear Lord. I know. I'm like the last one. And, and, and I like I read one of her books and I went on my you know social media stores. I'm like, have you guys heard of this lady? And everyone's like, yeah, Shaleen, you're a little late to the party. Yeah, it was so crazy. So he takes me to this weekend event and I'm sitting there. And of course, I'm all made up and we're, at, we're in Esalen. Who makes gets made up in Esalen? What's Esalen? Esalen is a spiritual retreat center and she's doing this retreat there. Oh, of course. I, I put on lashes to go to the mailbox. So continue. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so we wouldn't get along great. But anyway, so I was sitting in this tent in Big Sur. It's beautiful. And and I'm just like taking it in, but there's no way I'm going to share. There's no way. And all these people, Byron Katie asked this one question, what do you hate about your body? Mm. And it unleashes this insane, crazy thing with the women in this tent. And they all start standing up and sharing all the things they hate about their body. And I'm looking around and I'm like, I don't look like these people. I'm not the same age as these people, but we have the exact same list. Mm. And in that moment, I realize we all think the same. It doesn't matter what we look like. It's really not about how you look. It's really something much deeper. And so, and it was in that moment that I finally, the dam broke and I stood up and like this one woman was saying, if I was just thinner, if I was just younger, if I could just manipulate men more, my husband wouldn't have left me. I want to be like the young woman who stole my husband. And I stood up and I, I had this like face to face with her. And I'm like, I sort of look like the woman she described. Mm. And I'm like, you think if you were younger or in better shape or thinner, 
that your life would be different. You would just have different problems. No, oh, by the way, my marriage still ended. I still wasn't good enough. Yeah. And it was, I had never spoken in a group like that. And just all of a sudden the dam breaks and there's this huge sense of relief, but I was also embarrassed. Huh. And all of a sudden these women come running up to me afterwards and they're like, thank you for sharing. I can't believe that, you know, someone who is as young as you or looks like you or is in shape had that, ex- you know, feels that way. And if, if that's true, then it really isn't about my weight. Mm. It really isn't about this or that or the other. It's I need to work on me. And that's when I realized I need to work on me. I'm so happy that you said that you, you know, actually shared that when you shared in that group, you felt a sense of like a relief, but also some embarrassment. And I've heard that referred to before as a vulnerability hangover. But I think that's important to say, because I think people assume, well, if I get this off my chest, I'm going to just feel amazing. But you do have the sense of like, how did that go? What do people think? Yes. Oh, yeah. I ran out of the tent. Mm. <laughs> I ran out. It was the end of the day. I was going to take off. Oh my Daniel was dumbfounded because he, he knew that I would never share. And so when I, I did, he was like, wow, OK, I'm impressed and I'm mind blown. So I'm like, let's go. I want to go. And so I got up and I took off running. But these women came after me. Oh, and so when they sort of ran after me and they're like, please let us talk to you. Like, we're so grateful that you shared. And I'm like, what? Like, it was the first time I'd ever done that. And so I realized the power of being vulnerable, but yeah, it still took time. That was sort of the beginning of my journey into self-discovery, into therapy, into really beginning to understand some of the pain from the past that I had just stuffed, you know, down way deep. That was the beginning of the journey. And I think everyone has to start there. And it mm-hmm. sounds to me like you started, it was just like, you know, the right moment, the right time, the right circumstances to test the waters. And maybe you mm-hmm. felt safe enough to share in that environment do you recommend that people who are living, you know, this secret life, almost hiding their pain from their past and carrying a facade, do you recommend that they start by going to therapy, by doing a workshop, by just testing the waters, turning to their faith? Is there a how-to? So I think it's different for everybody. Mm. So at Amen Clinics, we treat people according to four circles. It's biology, psychology, your social circle, and your spiritual circle. So there's the biology of it. So, you know, I couldn't have known when I was growing up what I know now that food matters. It matters a lot, right? If your thyroid's off, which I had thyroid cancer, it matters. If your vitamin D is low, it matters. All those things can actually affect things like compulsions and addictions, depression, anxiety. So it's really important to go to a physician or someone who really knows how to test you and get your numbers checked. Mm -hmm, That's one thing. mm -hmm. But then there's the psychology. It's how you're thinking. So yeah, talking to someone or getting therapy can really help. Also learning, like what Byron Katie does, putting discipline around your thoughts, right? Your thoughts lie. They lie a lot. So learning how to question them is really important. Just like you would never let your kids run wild, or if you do, you realize that the consequences are pretty significant. You want your mind to be controlled. That's a good point. But then you've got that, yeah, you've got that social circle because who you hang out with matters. So the people you spend time with are contagious, So you need to also be looking at that, like, where am I spending my time? If you're a recovering addict, but you're hanging out in bars or gambling, you're going to casinos and going, I can control this, then you're in denial. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the spiritual circle. And spirituality, I get it. It can mean different things for different people. But really, what is your meaning and purpose? Because purposeful people live 11 years longer. They live longer. They're happier. They're less self-absorbed. And whenever you are less self-absorbed, you're going to be a happier person. So looking at it through all four of those circles is really important. And I think it's different for everybody. Do you start with a seminar? Do you start with 
you know, therapy, or do you start with a friend that you really trust? Just start somewhere. Because it's just, it's for your own sanity. You know, it's for your own survival. You know, in your book, you talk about being a scared child and how Mm -hmm. recognizing that so many of us are just scared children helped you Mm -hmm. to understand kind of a bigger purpose for your life. Can you walk us back? Because that's a hard thing to admit, right? Because we we want that feels like vulnerability and vulnerability is scary, especially to a a woman who, you know, whether it's facade or, or who you are, you're strong woman, like there's no taking away the fact that you've done so much on your own, that to admit that there's a part of you that's still a scared child feels vulnerable. And like, I won't be able to, as as you said, like control things, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and I want to get to your eating disorder too. But so much of that is about like, I've got to maintain control over the things because there's so much I can't control. So talk to us about that moment when you realized that you're a scared child and how that has had an impact on the way you view other people and your purpose. So that circles back to the very first thing we started talking about. It was at the event where I was feeling very judgmental about these people who had addictions Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. chemical addictions. And most of them were court ordered to be there. And I have this revelation. I don't want to be there. God picks the wrong person. This woman confronts me and I realize she's judging me as harshly as I'm judging her. And I started praying really fast because I'm thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to teach these people? They're still jonesing for a pipe and a needle. Right. And I'm going to teach them about gluten. Like, really? So I was struggling and I start praying really quickly. I always do before I go on stage. It's like, dear Lord, if there's one person in the audience that I can teach something to that will get something, let it, you know, let that come to them. And so I really quickly start praying this. And all of a sudden I have an epiphany. It's me that needed to learn it. And I have this epiphany and I realize that we like, we were just all scared children. We were all in the same place at the same point at one time in life. We were all just scared children. If I could be that vessel and deliver that message and help one person in that room, then that would be one less scared child in the world. One less scared little boy who hides because hiding is safer or a scared little girl who feels like an afterthought. So she, you know, learns to be invisible. Mm. And so I just, that sort of struck me. And I thought, I don't know why some people make a different turn in the road, why some of us, you know, make different choices at certain points. But at one time we had that in common. And if I could get back to that place, we could connect. I guess I do something very similar whenever I'm going to speak on stage too. First, I pray. I always pray that God will help me find the right words and then I'll be able to help the people who are meant to be there that day. But when I'm asked how I stay calm and don't worry about what people are thinking of me is I just remember that my deepest insecurity is shared by everybody in the audience and theirs might be even deeper so that my role when I step on stage is to make those people feel loved and seen and understood and to make them feel good not to bolster myself so to think that way again in that moment how did it change the way you looked at things moving forward you know, I'd love to tell you it was just this epiphany and that changed everything in the whole world. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> it's a journey, right? Yeah. So I became intentional about it. After that, I became intentional about it. And here's the really tricky part. Okay. Once you become intentional. Okay. So I began to realize that through that process, through a two-year process of helping these people with addictions, people I never thought I could be around or help or like, I ended up loving them and it ended up mm. becoming the most purposeful work I ever did. And I'm thinking, oh, that was amazing. The help was for them and the healing was for me. And it was true. God 
called me to help people that I didn't want to help so he could heal the broken parts of me. Mm. And so I felt really good about that. What I didn't know is that was just the dress rehearsal. <laughs> so be careful because all of a sudden it's sort of like working out. I feel like sometimes God's planning something in your life, mm -hmm. but he can't get you there and he can't get you ready to do it without giving you the workouts ahead of time. You got to train ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Warriors don't show up on fight day and plan to win unless they've been training every day. Right. So that was training for me and I didn't know it. I thought that was like such a cool thing and I had arrived. And then all of a sudden, the hard part was when my family started coming back into my life and needing my help. And I'm like, no, I disconnected from all of them. When you say you, you know, disconnected I, from all of them, at what stage did you disconnect from your family? Let me reiterate that. I didn't disconnect from my mother. I disconnected yeah. from the rest yeah, of them. Yeah. So my dad pretty much disconnected from me when I was a baby. Mm -hmm. And then he was doing drugs, became a Baptist minister, which was its own drama. It was a little Jerry Springer-ish. He was doing <laughs> drugs with my half sisters. It was crazy. So it really affected my faith and my own walk for a long time until I had this you know, revelation. My dad's not God. You know, he's yeah. a man. And so I was able to finally find my own journey and my own path. But I had to disconnect that. When there's someone trying to sell you on a story but that person is not there for you. It makes it very hard for you to attach, yeah. you know, to this idea of faith. Yeah. So it took me time to go on that journey by myself. It really hurt my, my journey for a long time. So he disconnected from me when I was really young. And then my half sisters, especially one of them, she way down the road of doing drugs and becoming homeless. And then she had two children and they ended up going into foster care. Mm -hmm. And until they went into foster care, she had disappeared out of my life. I didn't talk to her. Her life was way too chaotic for me. And I have a very no drama policy in my house. Okay. I just have to ask on that because that sounds so easy, right? Like I just, I know those people are not healthy for me and for my family and I've got to protect myself. And so I just keep those people at a distance. And I think we know that that's the right thing to do. But so many people listening struggle with that. They struggle with the guilt you struggle with wanting to give them another shot to get it right. Even when we know they don't have the tools, they don't have the resources, they don't have the biology to get it right, but we want to just give them one more chance to get it right. So it's easy to say, you know, I, I separated myself from those people, but, but it isn't easy to do, is it? It was easy for me. And I'll tell you mm. why. It wasn't a healthy thing. It was easy for me because my mother was pretty codependent. My mother made our lives pretty crazy because she just had people moving in all the time who were pretty destructive. So for me, I went the opposite extreme. I'm not saying what I did was right. I went the extreme of like wall barriers, you're out. Ah, I see. Okay, got it. I didn't give you three strikes. You had one. Got it. And that was it. Yeah. And there's the door. And so I was pretty harsh. I was pretty intense. And then when my nieces were taken into foster care, I suddenly felt like I didn't have a choice. And if you don't want to reattach to people from your past, again, don't marry a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to fix everybody. So I need to scan them. That's like the famous oh line. Oh dear. Yes. So, so these people start coming back into my life that I didn't want in my life. Mm. This is when, if, if you can share. My dad, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And this is when I was dating Daniel. Okay. And so again, this is right around the time I'm finally getting help for myself. Right. And I'm thinking, I'm finally doing okay. I'm just starting to get this. I, there's no way I'm going to take on my prodigal father who just suddenly shows up when he needs me. No, that's not going to happen. And Daniel's right. like, yeah, you can do this. So I'm like, you're insane. Wow. My family's like Harry Springer, <laughs> but it's like an episode. Uh, so good. 
but we ended up doing it. And my dad didn't have Alzheimer's disease. Oh. He had something called pseudo dementia. He was put on a wonky combination of medications. Daniel takes him off the medications. My dad gets better. He's now living with me, starts doing Bible studies out of my house and teaching all day seminars. He was a recluse when he moved in with me, wouldn't even take a shower. Now he's doing all day seminars at the church. And I mean, it was this, it was literally like Lazarus effect. Wow. It was crazy. So yeah, it was pretty insane. And, but he died five years later, not from anything brain related. He died in my arms with me praying for him. Mm. That one act of grace on the part of my husband was again, this gift from God gave me the chance to heal a, something that was so painful from the past. And God was calling me to help someone so that he could heal the broken parts of me. And when my dad died, there was no anger. There was no resentment. There was no bitterness. He had so much pain and guilt and regret. And I was actually working with him to let that go. And so that's when I began to realize, oh, working with the addicts at, you know, at this rehabilitation center was really the warm up. Mm. It was to get me ready to do these things. And then, you know, working with my sister to get my nieces back, that was even harder. I know it's not easy to answer a hypothetical question, but I think probably many people struggle with a similar story where they have a parent who for their own sanity and their the health and protection of their own family, they need to, you know, keep that wall up. And if circumstances are such that they never get to connect with them, do you think you could have, if you had not reconnected, and could you have forgiven him and had that same, you know, no anger towards him feeling? I definitely could have, mm. because there are people, what if this person dies? Yeah, or passes yeah, away? yeah. There are times you have to, there would have been unanswered questions. Mm. So I, I probably, I think there are great skilled therapists that can help you with that. So I definitely could have done that. I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to do it while he was alive. But I will say this, I still have family members I'm really happy that I had the opportunity to help the family members I have helped. Okay. I do still have a couple of family members that I know I can't let back in. Mm -hmm. It's the drama is too intense. The boy, they try to work their way in, don't they? Yeah. The threat to my family is not worth it to me. So there are people that I say I love from a distance. It's okay to love some people from a distance. Yeah. I pray for them. I might send them, you know, an occasional check on Christmas or check in on them. They can't come to my home. Yeah. It just, I still have that self-preservation yeah. intact. You mentioned that that experience actually helped to heal you. And explain, like, for example, do you think that that healed the anger that you had towards those people in your family who were addicted? What pain specifically do you feel like those people were able to help you heal? And, and how so? Yeah, well, I mean, I titled, I titled the book Relentless Courage mm -hmm. for a Reason relentless courage of a scared child, because it is, you have to be relentless about it. I mean, I don't think it happens quickly. So healing, I mean, most of the healing I began to realize, yes, I had anger towards certain people in my life, but most of it was for me. Hmm. I needed to do a lot of healing for myself. Once I was able to acknowledge certain things about myself, it made it easier, if that makes sense. When you're not honest with yourself, when you're hiding certain things from yourself, for anybody who's listening, if you are still suffering with severe anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and you're not getting help, it's really hard to forgive other people yeah. or to reach out and help yeah. other people. It's like an oxygen mask on yourself. Yeah. And I mean, I, there was a time in my life I wanted to die. I would pray that a truck would hit me. I was just wasting oxygen on the planet. So wow. how am I at that point going to even think about forgiving other people or helping other people? 
So it really does kind of have to start with you. You've got to be in a healthy place to do that before you can actually, I think, take certain steps to accept certain people. You know, we, yeah, we all yeah. win, we lose, we fall, we get up. Sadly, sometimes the disease wins, but knowing when to get professional help is really important mm. and reaching out to people is really important. And then the next step, I think, is being able to reach out to those people that you love that you need to forgive. Mm. How much, if you don't mind me asking, does did faith play a role in your life kind of before this transformation and then after? Like, have you always been someone who's in touch no. with your Christianity, your faith? So play, I think I touched on it a little bit. Initially, faith played a really wacky role in my life and made me more confused than ever. And I never doubted that there was a God. Because of your dad's relationship with the church? Right. Okay. I think because it was just such a weird thing in my life growing up, there was, you know, this hellfire and brimstone, but then not living the message and, you know, doing drugs and having certain behaviors that didn't make sense. So it really affected my own journey. So it's not like God was unknown to me. Mm -hmm. It's that God was really confusing to me when I was young. So it wasn't until I learned about the word responsibility mm -hmm. that I began to that's my favorite word on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I think of responsibility as the ability to respond. It's not about taking blame. It's about how much ability to respond do you want in a situation? Because if you don't take 100% responsibility, you don't have 100% control over being able to change the outcome. So I can't take the blame for cancer, but I can take responsibility for my health. So that was a word I learned that changed my life. It changed the trajectory of my life. And it actually affected my faith. That's when I began to realize my walk, my faith is my own. It has nothing to do with my dad or anyone else. My dad's not God. He's just a man. He's a broken man who, oh, by the way, if you look at his life through those four circles, biological, psychological, social, and spiritual, he was broken. He had his own demons yeah. that he was wrestling with. And so that's when I really began to build my own faith. Sometimes I think it's difficult to have a conversation with a friend recently, and we were talking about how you know, so much of her father's shortcomings and the way he's just ill-equipped to connect and just to be the kind of dad he should have been probably stems from his own stuff, you know? Right. But there's also that child in all of us. It's like, yeah, but I shouldn't have to parent you. You know, right. you had me. It's your responsibility to fix those things. And it's hard to find grace for those who weren't able to do the things that they should have done. But I don't know how people can get through the darkest days, as you've described and described in your book, like suffering from such, you know, deep, dark depression, like really wishing yourself dead, how you get through that without faith or to get through grief didn't. without faith. Yeah, no, I almost didn't. And then I realized, I mean, you know, some of us, you know, we have to hit the bottom. We have to hit rock bottom before we can turn it around. And then some of us find basements <laughs> and then some of us find sub-basements, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. that was sort of me. I kept finding sub-basements. I wasn't hitting rock bottom. It just kept getting worse. Mm. And within two months, I had been diagnosed with cancer. My mom had brain surgery, lost my job, had to file for bankruptcy, drop out of school, had no money. And I was, I just, I was like, what is the purpose for me living? And I fell into this just wicked depression, the kind of depression where you just can't get out of your skin. Mm. And there's just no hope. There's just literally no hope. And so it was at that point, I finally realized I had known some pretty powerful people prior to being diagnosed with cancer. I kind of felt like I had the world by the tail. Things were finally turning around in my life. And then bam, it just was just disintegrated. And so 
But I thought this, what I'm going through now is going to take so much for me to get out. There's no person on the planet that can do this. This is going to take something way bigger than a man. This is going to take something way bigger than anything in my power or anyone else's power. And I couldn't see any way out of it. There was only one hope. I mean, all I could do is just hope that there was something bigger out there that was going to pull me out. And so I began this journey through a friend. And yeah, I was, my whole life turned around. You've been diagnosed with cancer, if I'm not mistaken, three times. Yeah, they four technically, but <laughs> but now I'm learning to live in peace with it. <laughs> so. And all the same type of cancer? Is this reoccurring? Or? Yeah, same type of cancer. It had metastasized. It wasn't a terminal cancer. So you want to talk about something really weird to go through. I kept thinking, well, it's not terminal. I'm fine. I'm going to be fine in a few months. This should be fine. But it kept coming back. And so when it kept coming back, it just sort of devastated my life. And that's why I lost everything. But I went through this guilt for not getting... A worse type of cancer. Oh, interesting. I'm like, why do I feel so bad if I'm not going to die? Never heard that before. Yeah, I don't have terminal cancer. I should be grateful. Why am I so angry? And so I began to feel this guilt. Like It's like I can't even get cancer in a way that makes sense. Like it was super weird when you know that you're not going to die. So you should feel more grateful, but you can't because it won't go away. <laughs> so it yeah. was just, it was interesting. You talk about you know, I, I know we're going forward and backwards, but I just keep thinking about so many things that make you who you are today. And you're really fortunate enough to have at least one parent who, in some ways, your mom really became a role model for you in terms of her strength. And in the yeah. book, you say her grit became my grit. Yeah. And you talk about how just especially with your mom, you learned how to just persevere. Yeah. How does somebody learn to persevere who doesn't have that role model to them. And do you think that was, do you think that was role model to you? Or do you think that's like, you know, as we've talked about part of your biology? You know, I've wondered that same thing. I've actually started researching resilience for that reason, because some people think that you're either born an oak or you're born a willow, Mm. right? So you're either resilient or you're not. I'm not sure if that's true. My mom was the toughest woman I know, literally the toughest woman I know. Unfortunately, because she was a 16 year old runaway, had no money. And we were poor when I was growing up. She didn't finish high school. She also worked three jobs and wasn't there. So Mm. because she wasn't there a lot, but there were other weird people in my house, it (laughs) left a lot of, you know, opportunities for bad things to happen. But I watched her perseverance and I do think she modeled perseverance for me. She just never would give up. She would never quit. Mm. My two half sisters grew up with my dad, who was the exact opposite of my mom, just always the victim. And so they tended to take on that role. And it was really interesting. So I think definitely part of it is modeling. Mm -hmm. I think part of it could be genetic. I'm not exactly sure. Mm -hmm. But I know that with my mom, definitely her grit became my grit. Mm -hmm. Because things were not easy. They weren't easy for her. They weren't easy for me. But we just never quit. Yeah. You know, there's time I wanted to. But then somewhere you just find that will to just somewhere deep down inside and you hang on Mm -hmm. and you build. So life at home wasn't very stable. Life at home was scary, you know didn't really have a strong (laughs) male protector in your life. How much do you think that played into your eating disorder? And when, because you describe yourself in the book as a kind of a dorky kid, a skinny girl. So when did the eating disorder become a coping mechanism? And how much of it, that coping, do you think had to do with, you know, because I think for our listeners, we haven't done recent episodes on eating disorders. We've done them in the past. Like it isn't about the weight. It's about like, really trying to control circumstances. And so my first question is, when did that start to take hold? 
And do you know what it was that kind of triggered it? You know, again, I think eating disorders are complicated. They're different for everybody. Mm -hmm. We look at it through those four circles I talked about before, but things were very chaotic and out of control. And I always felt like things were out of control. There was a period, there's one chapter I write about in the book, and that was the period of my life that was the most out of control. I went from being this very skinny kid to being not a skinny kid. Mm -hmm. I start, sort of put on a lot of fat in all the wrong or right places, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I went from being very skinny and awkward and the nerd to being all of a sudden given way too much attention mm -hmm. for my appearance. Yeah, I was much older than I was and I was overdeveloped and that felt really weird. And my stepdad at 12, my first stepdad molested me, mm -hmm. climbed into bed with me. My second stepdad had the nickname for me, sexy. Ugh. Yeah. So it was really weird. It was a weird time. I was so confused about who I was, what people expected about me or expected of me. And I hated it. I mean, I really hated it. But at some point, if I went outside and it didn't happen, if I went out with no makeup and dressed really simple and I didn't get that kind of attention, I began to think something was wrong with me. Mm. So I began to crave this attention that I hated. Yeah, I, I get it. It's such a twisted thing. Yeah. And it became very painful. It was really, really weird. And I began to just sort of withdraw within myself, but yet I needed that attention to validate me. And I began to think that's what I was valued for. Mm. And at the same time, I'm struggling for control over something in my life. And so I was just ripe for a code red identity crisis and an eating disorder. Was it in your teens then? Yeah, it was in my teens. Fortunately for me, the way it emerged for me, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know how you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't sort of classic. I mean, I was able to learn to manage most of the symptoms through exercise. I never realized, no one ever explained to me that purging could be done through exercise. It's not just mm. on over a toilet bowl. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, I'm better. I'm fine. So I never got help mm. when in fact I would work out two hours a day to kill myself, you know, hell or high water. Even if I had 104 temperature, I'm going to the gym mm. to sweat it out. Mm. Yeah. That's not healthy. And so I was really abusing my body in a, just a whole different way. Mm. Yeah. You know, the way your mom responded was interesting. You know, I think I've heard stories where a mother typically when they find out, or sometimes a father, when they find out that their daughter or their child has been molested, they don't want to talk about it, or they say this did not happen, or they deny the child that they're telling the truth. How did it play out for you, the fact that your mom did believe you? It was kind of an interesting story about how she, and then your fear of thinking that the neighbors would find out the secret you had. How did that impact you, the way your mom handled it? Well, she believed me mm -hmm. and she actually, my mom's was, she's got, we'll call it intuitive, a little beyond intuitive, mm. but she's got this sort of gift of being able to, to feel things and know things. And she sort of figured it out before I even told her, mm. but she believed and she believed me. And then she, it was very dramatic and traumatic. She physically attacked him. Mm -hmm. She, I mean, it was chaos again, all over again, the screaming, the yelling, she's running up and down the street falling in the middle of the street, you know, telling, making sure everybody knew he was a child molester. Uh, I know that's probably horribly triggering for you. But like, for me, I was just like, yes, like, you know, like, that's what you want. You would want to rip his face off. And I felt validated. And I felt it was one of my mom hero stories. Mm, that I, yeah. yeah. One of my mom hero stories. So it's kind of a crazy story. You know, she wasn't perfect. She handled that amazingly. There was a moment, though, afterwards where he called for some reason and shocked me. It was like I was punched in the gut. What do you mean it shocked? Like you were surprised that you were getting the call? I was surprised to hear his voice. Oh, okay. I, we, I was working. We had a store and I was mm. working there and he called and I was so <sighs> stunned. And so I had sort of learned how to find my voice at that point. I knew if I didn't, I was 
something bad would happen to me. And so I started finding my voice. And so I yelled at him and I called him a name and I slammed the phone down, made a bunch of noise. And my mom got angry and she said, you know, you need like be polite. And she's like yelling at me to be polite. She's trying to get me to keep my voice down. And of course it didn't occur to me that we were in our place of business. And I was so angry that she wanted me to be polite to this person. And I'm thinking, why would I be polite to someone who tried to rape me? And so it almost undid everything that she did to protect me in the moment. Mm. And it was one of those moments where I thought, I'll never lose my voice. I don't care who says it. Not my mom, not anybody. And I went a little overboard with it. I became pretty caustic for a while. But it was one of those moments where I thought, I'm going to teach my daughter, you know, if you think you're in danger, don't be polite. Apologize later if you want to. Good advice. But do not be polite. Yeah. Yeah. How did you heal from your, and how long did your eating disorder play a role in your life? So I thought it was gone. It would go away. So it was, my mind was sort of, I don't think typical in the sense that it would emerge when I would be out of control. When things felt out of control in my life, I, this would emerge. Mm-hmm. And then I think it was gone like eight years, 10 years would go by. I think I was fine. Of course, I'm still exercising like crazy, not giving up the exercise mm-hmm. for anything, but not just regular exercise, really intense exercise. Mm-hmm. And then something would happen like cancer when I couldn't exercise that was taken away from me. When the exercise is taken away, it emerged. I see. When I got back on track, I got back on track again. And then all of a sudden, when I went through my divorce, it emerged again. And I thought I was so horrified and humiliated that it could emerge again in my 30s when I'm a mother going through a custody battle. Mm. And I thought, I can't tell anybody now. That's when it became a big secret. And I'm like, I can't tell anybody. I don't know if they would take my daughter from me, but I sort of just stuffed it all inside, pretended to be perfect. And I was just ripe for it to reemerge because of all the stress. It was trying to find that control again in my life. So, you know, it always be for fortunately no more than a few months before I'd find some way to control it, but I never really healed it. Mm-hmm. I never really dealt with it. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first time after I met my husband was the first time I actually really felt safe enough to just deal with it. And then how did you deal with it? Did you do therapy for it? A lot of therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I did EMDR. I did a type oh, yeah. of therapy that was really good. Yeah. For trauma. Yeah. We talk a lot and, about EMDR uh, on the show. Oh yeah. And it was amazing. Of course, I'm, I walked in there and I'm like, I'm not banging my head up against a wall for, you know, three years telling you how messed up my mom is and you're not going to do that. But I ended up just loving it. It was so releasing. It was so healing. Yeah. And so I did a couple of years of it and I did do a couple of years and did go in and tell her how messed up, you know, my life was growing up, but I ended up just really being able to, for the first time, feel whole. Yeah. A word that I was silly, but I'm like, oh my gosh, I actually feel whole. I don't feel, it's not that I feel cured because I'm still me, but I, my favorite art form is something called Kintsugi. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. Can you spell it? K-I-N-T-S-U-G-I, Kintsugi. Okay. And it's based on pottery that's broken. And when the pottery is broken, they don't throw it away. They mend it with melted gold or platinum. Okay. So broken pieces together. And they believe that the art or the pottery becomes art is more beautiful, not in spite of the breaks, but because of them, that there's a story to be told. And so it becomes more beautiful. Mm. And so I began to sort of think of life that way. And I thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not strong. I'm not more beautiful in spite of those flaws. I'm more beautiful in my own unique way and more purposeful because of them. Mm. So that became my favorite art form. I love that. We're going to take a quick break to elaborate on one of the suggestions that Tana just mentioned, and that is, that's therapy. 
Now, maybe you don't live in a city where you can visit the Amen Clinic, or money is tight right now and you just can't afford to go see a world-renowned therapist. But you know you've got some things you need to work through, and we shouldn't go to our friends for these things. We should go to a professional. You don't have time. You can't afford to not deal with these things. You have an incredible life ahead of you. And if you just keep repeating the same problems, the same depression, anxiety, the same mistakes, that means that there's an underlying issue. And I want you to take my advice and take the advice of so many guests that you've heard here on The Shaleen Show who say like, yeah, listen, the quickest way to deal with this is to go to therapy. That is why I'm very proud to share with you our show sponsor today is Talkspace. Talkspace is online therapy. It's convenient. It's affordable. And this is how you can make a lasting change in your life with the support of a licensed therapist. Here's how Talkspace works. All right, so you're going to go to Talkspace.com. And because you are a listener of the show, when you enter the code Shaleen, you're going to get $100 off your first month. That's right. When you show your support for the show and enter the code Shaleen at Talkspace.com, $100 off your first month. Here's how it works. I've gone through this myself. You're going to answer a series of questions that will help to match you with a licensed therapist virtually based on your needs and your preferences. Now, the way you work with your therapist is you can text them, you can send audios to them, you can send pictures, you can send video messages. It's all from your phone or from your computer. Super duper convenient. And as I said, this is very affordable. Talkspace is going to match you with the right therapist. And if for some reason, which it happens, it's not the right fit, well, then they will match you with another therapist. They will find you the right therapist so that you can do the work you know you need to do. Or maybe you're just trying to sort through feelings, anxiety, depression, whatever it is. You are not alone. Get the support that you need. Once you're matched with your therapist, like literally the very same day, you can start working through some of this stuff. Do it. Bottom line is we all need to talk to somebody and talk space wants to make it more affordable. They want to give you the support that you deserve at a price that you can afford. Again, as a listener of the show, you get $100 off. Go to Talkspace.com. You can download the app. Don't forget to use the code Shaleen. That's how you get your $100 off your first month. And it's also how you show support for the show. It's also how you become an evolved, smart human being. That's Shaleen at Talkspace.com. All right, back to the interview. You know, so much of the early chapters of your book when I, you know, read that you struggled with an eating disorder and that there was, you know, childhood sexual abuse, that wasn't surprising to me because I think, I don't know if the, off the top of my head statistically what it is, but it's very high, the correlation, the relationship between sexual abuse and eating disorders, certainly not all. Mm -hmm. But I also thought about how just your body became this thing where you were I almost want to say bullied or targeted because of the oh, yeah. way you looked. And for yeah. so many people, we judge, and let's just be honest, you're a beautiful woman. I always say you look like Jessica Rabbit embodied, like you're just, <laughs> but with a brain. And <laughs> yeah, and you know, one of the smartest, poised, most graceful women I know. And people, we don't want to like people who just look like, man, you just, you were dealt a hand of cards. You've got beautiful hair and beautiful skin and beautiful, you know, structure and this beautiful body. And so therefore, life has always been good for you. But, you know, as I read <laughs> through your the chapters of your early childhood, it was something that made you a target. Yeah. 
can you talk to us yeah. about that? Like, because I, I think then, you know, you said like, I almost had guilt because I had the wrong kind of cancer. It wasn't bad enough. So I almost wondered, like, did you ever have guilt? Like, why well, I can't complain about this because I'm not o- overweight. I'm not obese. So I, I don't have oh, any, absolutely. I don't have any business complaining about the fact that I was targeted or picked on or bullied even because I had a, an, oh, yeah. an overly developed, nice body as a young girl. Yeah, no, because people would be like, well, it's better than the opposite. And I'm like, okay, so I should be grateful. I felt bad Mm -hmm. because I thought, well, I should be grateful that just because I have problems, I get to deal with them in a vessel that looks a certain way. Right. It was very odd. It was very confusing, actually. It was very confusing. And I was bullied. So people think that, you know, kids get bullied because they are what overweight or because they are nerdy, which I was, you know, when I was young, but that's not always true. I was bullied because of the way I looked. I was called, you know, names. I was called a slut. I was asked out by the dean of boys at my high school. Oh my um, so it was pretty crazy, but it didn't go around that the rumor didn't go around that he asked me out in front of people. It went around that I was sleeping with him. Mm. It went around that I was the slut. So things get turned around. And then I was attacked at 15 walking mm. to high school, drugged down an alley. It was just the craziest thing. So I, I often felt very confused by... Like, am I supposed to be happy about this? Or am I like, how do I manage this? Like, it's just, I felt confused by the general chaos in my life that was me. And (laughs) one way certainly to make sure or to try to take control of that is to try to control your body through over-exercise and and anorexia. Yeah. Eating disorders as well. And I think that's something that we, you know, we need to start talking about a little more regularly, you know, because we don't. But I... Children are made to be targets for anything that's different and everything that's different. So we we have to stop just assuming that because our you know kids aren't overweight that they're not going to be teased for something or bullied or it's or targeted. True. You know, so talk to us now about this transformation. So today you have just this incredible resume of things that you've done and things that you continue to do and is this your 10th or 11th book? It's my 10th. 10th book. You're, I think, the VP at Amen Clinics. Is that right? Yeah. And I think you guys have like at least eight clinics, last count. We have eight. We're opening a new one. We're opening two more. Yeah. You're busy. And you're a mom and you're a wife yeah. and a podcaster and a friend and all of these things. How do you maintain your health, your mental health, when I'm reading this book right now? I can't think of the name of it now, but it's something about the fact that we're all addicted to to hurrying. And I I think about how so much of what we do is in this hurried state and and we just become addicted to being hurried and addicted to doing more. And, you know, New York Times bestselling book isn't enough. I need another and I, I need to write another book. And do you ever feel like, okay, I need to just chill? I do. Okay. I do actually. Yeah. So I take care of my health because I'm too busy not to. Mm-hmm. So, and that's what I often tell people that I'm coaching. It's like, if you're busy, you don't have time not to take care of yourself. Cause you're, I already know firsthand, you're not going to keep functioning. Right. So I think those four circles we talked about earlier, the biology, psychology, social, and spiritual, they're like tires on a car. One goes flat. It'll drive for a little while. More than one goes flat. The car is going to flip. My car's already flipped. So I already know what that's like. I don't want to ever go back there. So I know that I'm too busy not to take care of myself. It's not an option. And one thing I have, I feel very proud of myself for, if you will, is that I have learned to appreciate being still. So I took a few years off 
because I really wasn't working much on social media or writing or doing much of anything because my daughter was homeschooling and I knew I could never get those years back. And so I really just wanted to be a mom. And so we were just so bonded. We're like attached at the hip. And I'm like, you know, I can work when she goes to college. I can catch up later, but I'm never going to get these years back. And so I do know what it's like to need to take that time. But I finally know when I need to take it. And I take it. I'm so glad you said that. We share that view, both of us, that there are seasons. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes when we read someone's resume or hear about their accomplishments, it feels like they're doing all these things at once. You have to look at the grand scheme of things. And, and also, we just can't. Right, I'm 52. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, you, and we can't compare, right? Like we just, uh-huh. we can't compare ourselves to somebody else who maybe doesn't have the luxury of doing, of a supportive spouse or, you know, the luxury to take a couple of years off. So we can't compare ourselves, but we also have the ability to say, can I do this later? Because one thing we can't do later is raise our kids. We can't do that later. Right. And, and, you know, and I do want to touch on something you said, because, you know, I came from a background where we did not have money. I mean, we did not have food mm-hmm. at one point. So I get it. Yep. There are moms out there that can't do what I did. And I don't want to ever minimize that. I know what it's like to have a single working mother who just can't afford to make ends meet. Yeah. So I don't want to minimize that. I know there are people out there who are struggling. So one of the reasons I think I was so adamant about doing it and because I got my life to a place where I could. And it's not just because of my husband. I actually worked really hard prior to that, but I also didn't have my daughter till I was 35 Mm. was because that was important to me. And my mom would cry when she'd see me with my daughter. And she's like, I would have given anything to have that time with you. Mm. So I can appreciate, you know, people who are doing that. And all I can tell you is just do the best you can and still be aware, take responsibility. I like, I like that word responsibility, not blame. Yeah. Be responsible, which gives you the ability to respond to the situation you're in and make the most of it. So, you know, just do what you can. Focus on what you can do, not on what you can't do. Your daughter. What things do you think you learned from your mother that you want your daughter or you wanted to role model to your daughter? Grit and strength. My daughter is as strong as they come. I practice martial arts. I love it. I've been practicing for a long time. So that was something I did with my daughter. I'm like, dance is optional. Martial arts is not. <laughs> you need to be able to protect yourself. You know, you'd have to at least be able to, to punch someone in the throat really hard. <laughs> so I know I shouldn't say that out loud, but it's the truth. Well, I can think of some other places we could kick them too. Right. I wanted her to feel empowered and just be strong and know that she could do things that necessarily she didn't think she could. We go yeah. on survival trips together out in the desert where we build our own shelter purify our own water. My husband thinks we're insane, but she's a little powerhouse. I mean, she's five feet tall and she's this little powerhouse because she's never been taught that she can't do something. And how old is she now? She's 17. I'm I'm already starting to panic. Uh, she's starting to leave next year. Oh, you've done your work. You've done your work. So, so, you know, when you write a book like this and you're talking about your past, even to talk about your past openly, like even just on a podcast, I'm sure there are people out there who Maybe they're ready to do that, but they fear family hearing yeah. their truth. First of all, does your daughter know about the you know depths of your childhood? Does she know about these things? Did you talk to her before you published the book? And that's my first question. And my second follow-up question would be, did you worry about people who might still be alive, who are part of your childhood story, part of your past, who either wouldn't want to be exposed, might disagree, or even say, oh, it didn't happen like that? So- 
Yes, to both of those. Uh, so I, my daughter, I waited to write it until I could, until she was old enough for her to understand okay. that I could talk to her. And was that a conscientious decision? Like, did you say, okay, I'm going to wait. You know, this is my story. I'm I'm ready to tell it, but it wouldn't be helpful to her. Yeah, I knew I wouldn't okay. be ready until she would understand, okay. until I could really explain to her. So that's one. There are a couple of holes in the story where you'll notice there are some people I don't talk about. And that's because they don't want to be spoken about. And it's not too hard to figure out by the way it's written that those are probably the most dramatic stories. <laughs> so when someone doesn't want something written, it's usually because they're the most dramatic stories. So those are not in there. And it's easy to see which ones those are. Funny, the legal department from my publisher called me and they said, we have to make sure this is not over-exaggerated. These people are alive. We need to get permission. Everyone signed permission slips. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's surprising to me. I didn't know that. So if you write a book and it's got you know, details such as are shared in your book. And and by the way, I hope everyone picks up this book. It is such a powerful read, Relentless Courage. And before I forget, you can pick up an early copy by going to relentlesscourage.com. Go there because that's where you will get up to almost $500, over $400 worth of bonuses. And what a great book this is to read. It's inspiring. It keeps you on the edge of your seat. And there's so many lessons to be learned in it. But again, to my question, I didn't know that if you, if you write your own memoir, your publisher would need to verify that the stories are accurate. Ooh, what does it matter if somebody else thinks it's accurate? I mean, so often people are like, oh, that's not how it happened. So it's, it's a gray area mm. because you are allowed to write your memories, but many publishers don't want to be sued. Mm. So my publisher wasn't willing to do it without having written permission that it's okay that we write these things. But you can imagine that if I'm able to get written permission from people who are alive, I had to actually temper the book a little. For sure. And my publisher thought that it was over-exaggerated. I'm like, I assure you, it's under-exaggerated. Wow. I promise you, the worst stuff is not in there because they're alive. They're not going to let me put that stuff in there. So it's definitely under-exaggerated. I wasn't writing it for the purpose of having this gratuitous, gratuitous crazy stuff in there. I wrote a series of stories, a collection of stories for a purpose. It's a purpose of overcoming. It's a purpose to give people hope. So it's a collection that yeah. if, you know, if you are suffering with depression, anxiety, trauma from the past, there's hope to overcome. That was the purpose. It wasn't to just put as much dirt in there as I could. But there's a lot of dirt. <laughs> right. So how is it you became the woman who then knew she deserved to have someone who was really kind and really gentle and really intelligent and successful, like a good catch, you know, because so often we look for someone who we think we deserve and when, especially when we're broken and before we're, you've done that work to heal yourself, you look for someone who you think you just deserve, you know? And, and so when Daniel Amen, Dr. Daniel Amen, who's been on the show many times, when you met him, did you believe, because you'd mentioned like, you know, I, I kept kind of coming in and out of his life. What was different about you at that point that you were like, okay, maybe this is the relationship I deserve? So initially I didn't. And so I was, I still had that facade. I did not want to, you know, I just felt like things were such a mess in my life and I was doing him a favor. And so I thought if he really knew me, he wouldn't be here anyways. Mm. So I'd do him a favor and make this easy. And I would just go. And he's like, well, you let me decide, stop doing that. And so I did not trust him because my template wasn't set for someone like him. My template <laughs> was not set 
for someone who's kind and easy. And I mean, he's the easiest person. If you've ever seen him, you know, on a podcast or on a live chat, that is him. Yeah. He's just mellow, even cute. I call him my rock. He's just this sort of like, he's the yin to my yang. Yeah. So I kept thinking it was fake. And I'm like, he's trying to manipulate me. I was waiting for the other shoe to fall, but he wouldn't go away. He just wouldn't <laughs> go away. And so he was so patient and so kind. And finally, over time, he became my best friend. And it actually happened when we were broken up. Oh. So because he didn't go away, even when we were broken up, and he, even though I knew it broke his heart, I knew that it's not what he wanted, but he didn't try to manipulate me into getting what he wanted. He just stayed and was there for me as a friend. And it was during that time that I saw what he was really made of. And I'm like, he's for real. Mm. Like this guy's real. Why do I keep pushing this guy away? Like, do I deserve this? You know, you both are now today, you do so much work together and you're, you know, kind of support each other. And, and many of the books that you've written together, you kind of co-authored or kind of support each other in that way. You do the podcast together. You run the clinics together. How is it you maintain that attraction, that spirit, that spark and still yeah. really run these empires together? Because we work at it. First of all, he is my best friend, but we also work at it. We know, like, even during quarantine, we're like, we're doing date night in our bedroom. So <laughs> you guys need to And it's like, I mean, yeah, it's like, okay, kids know what we're doing in the bedroom. Okay, so what? So it's yeah, like, yeah. we're going away. So we just managed to, like, we know that we need to do that, but he really is my person for everything. So it's with intention mm. that we do that. Mm. Are there times, though, when you just feel like, oh, gosh, I just don't feel like talking about work? I mean, Brett and I work together, and I I don't know if our relationship is different than most. We didn't start off smoothly. It didn't work at all. Oh, we didn't either. Uh, but eventually, <laughs> we, now I just am like, oh, my gosh, it's the greatest thing ever. And we never, you know, there might be more where I'm like, oh, I just don't feel like talking about that right now. And he's like, okay, no problem. You know, like, it, it's never, we are almost always on the same page in that regard. How about the two of you? Yeah. So when we first started working together and doing podcasts together and doing interviews together, it was a little more tricky because we were both used to speaking and sort of being the center of attention. Yeah, yeah. So we learned how to play nice in the sandbox. Yes. It was really interesting and funny. Perfect. But now we just sort of blend and we meld together really well. Yeah, he doesn't ever, he works insane hours, even though he'll tell you he doesn't because he doesn't think he's working because uh -huh. he loves what he does. And he knows I've got the kids, I've got the house, I have other things that I'm doing. He never really pushes me. We just sort of blend really well, but I have a very evolved man. So, I mean, I just admit it. He's just very psychologically savvy and evolved and he doesn't push. So I'm not going to deny that I'm very lucky in that sense. Which of the two together. of you is like in our relationship, it's Brett who will say, okay, we should slow our pace. Is Do one of you play that role? So I'm far more intense in our personal life. And I mean, I do survival training and karate and I'm always preparing for pandemics and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But when it comes to business, I know that's his arena. Okay. So I let him take the lead. Okay. So he lets me take the lead in the house and I let him take the lead at work. Uh -huh. And it works out really well. He doesn't really push me at home and I don't push him at work. So I know that he's competent. So I'm happy yeah. to be, you know, like just his partner. And it works well for us doing that. Mm. You know, I've often said that people who have incredible resilience don't realize that they have that resilience. Like they, in fact, they'll hear someone else's story and go like, oh, you're not going to believe the story. And I'll go, but that pales in comparison to your childhood, you know, and they'll go like, what? And, you know, from the stories I've heard from you, 
you fit that category too. Someone who just didn't probably even realize your own resilience until you put your story on paper into a book. How cathartic was it for you to write this book? It was hard. I'm not going to say it wasn't hard. It was very hard to write mm-hmm. certain things, but then it's very cathartic. It's like a boil popping. It's like painful, mm. ew, gooey, and then it just sort of releases. But you're right. I didn't know I was resilient. I thought I was a broken mess. But you know, it takes putting the metal in fire to create a sword, right? It's going through fire. And I never thought of it that way. I never, in fact, I didn't even know my life was that weird. I knew it was. I mean, it's weird when you're mentally, I knew it was. Emotionally, I think I didn't quite get it. They weren't matching up because I'm like, well, don't a lot of people go through this? And I mean, isn't this just sort of normal? I'm just garden variety dysfunctional. Like I wasn't chained to a radiator. I wasn't like, you know, I kept thinking it wasn't nearly as bad as some people's lives I had heard about. You know, it's not like I was the daughter of a serial killer. I mean, that's how I would minimize it to make it okay. That's how I would survive it. And I'm like, it wasn't like that bad. But then Daniel would hear more and more. And like I said, it's not all in there. And so he would hear stuff and he's like, what? What?" (laughs) And then that's when I started to go, you're a psychiatrist. Why do you have that reaction? I'm confused. You're starting to concern me. (laughs) And that's when I began to realize that maybe I was more resilient than I thought. As we're nearing the end here, what final words of advice do you have for that person who's at the beginning of this journey? They're just beginning to realize how tired they are from carrying on the facade and maybe they're struggling with their own addictions or their own distractions and not wanting anyone to ever find out the truth of their past and spending so much time not talking about it, not thinking about it, not dealing with it. And it, it's catching up in the form of anxiety and depression and maybe disordered eating or, or some other form of addiction and distraction. And they know they were meant to hear you today. They're meant to read your book. What advice do you have for them? First of all, you're not alone. And I really would recommend you getting professional help. But one thing that I really want to point out is, you know, we all want a happy ending, but the truth is we're all just works in progress, right? We win, we lose, we fall. I think I said that earlier. And we all have broken pieces like that Kintsugi I talked about. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We've all got these broken pieces, these jagged edges. And for me, it's like, I think of that as God's golden repair. So if we can just put those pieces back together, however we put them back together, it's okay because we're more beautiful for those broken pieces, not in spite of them, but because of them. Mm. And you're not alone. You know, it's, it's, I never thought I would tell people these things about me. Wow. Yeah. And what a gift you give yourself when you do that and the world, Yes. right? I want to finish by sharing this one passage in your book where you say the screen lit up with words from one of the gentlemen in the program, Miguel, who said, My life was a mess, and now it's a message. I have been tested. Now I have a testimony. I was a victim, and now I'm victorious. I've been through trials, and now I am triumphant. That is so powerful, and I hope that those are words that people will remember. I hope you will pick up the book. You can get that by going to relentlesscourage.com. Go there now, and before you forget, like you can go to our show notes, you can click on them while you're listening to the podcast. You don't even have to like, you don't even have to turn the podcast off. Just scroll over the show notes. You'll see the link is there. You can go there and take advantage of the bonus you get by pre-ordering the book, which comes out in January. Tana, thank you so much for writing this book and for taking the time to share your story, your life with us. Oh, I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much. 